Life Audio. Welcome back to the Gospel Rant Podcast. I'm Dr. Bill Sinyard with Gospel App Ministries. Check out our website at gospel-app.com. Lots of resources for you to enjoy. So many free. So welcome to the third show in this critically important God's Love for the Unlovable series. This is not a bumper sticker or new t-shirts filled with Christianese. This is the real deal about the gospel and it could change our world. This is for all of you Jesus followers who want to experience the dance more, to really hear the music again. You know what I mean? This world just beats it out of us, right? Amen? So brothers and sisters in Christ, there is a love, a God-sourced, not human-sourced. It doesn't come from you. It doesn't come from your brain, but your brain is jonesing for it. This love pursues. This love loves the unlovable, the unlovely, and the unloved. That's all of us if we were only a little bit honest. It can make you feel, make you feel like you're falling in love with Jesus again. It can make you begin to love others more, particularly those who are unloved or societally speaking unlovable. It can make you begin to love yourself a little bit more and God more. In the first God's love for the unlovable show, your brain in love, we said that Jesus' love does not come to you by you just straining to choose to love more. It comes from you asking God for his power, which alone is designed to make you begin to feel Jesus' love for you and for others. We even gave you a specially designed tool, the Simple Uncluttered Gospel, for you to begin with. And let me know how it's been going. Bill at gospel-app.com. Love hearing from you. Love testimonies. In the second God's Love for the Unlovable show, we began to unpack just how confusing our modern notion of love is. And sadly, it looks much more like what the ancient Greeks and Romans thought than Paul. Well, in this third God's Love for the Unlovable show, we're going to go back to Rome. Did you know that Rome was terrified of love? But it turns out Jesus' love was far more a threat to Rome and, by the way, our culture today. I'm Dr. Bill Sinyard, and this is God's Love for the Unlovable, show number three, The Silencing of Eros. We will take a quick break to acknowledge some sponsors, and we will be right back. Hi, I'm Rebecca Scott. As a servant of God, wife, and mother of four, I understand the juggle of multiple roles and stages. That's why I created the Encourager podcast, to help guide us through the messy middle stage of life. Join me on The Encourager as we challenge the chaos and embrace harmony. Together, we'll create practical systems to balance your roles and fulfill priorities. And we will do it while having joy and energy for both home and work life. Tune in for inspiring stories and interviews, actionable tips, and methods to do both home and work life. Because here, we believe you can do all things, just not all at once. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... 
Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. You know, most Christians are likely familiar with the four types of love that were popularized initially by the great writer C.S. Lewis. There's agape, we call it God's love, phileo, friendship, storge, affection, and eros, which is more of a sexual, touching love where we get our word erotic. For the ancient Romans, they saw one of these in particular as an actual visceral threat to the empire. In a tale of the famous Roman writer Ovid, a contemporary of Jesus, by the way, Apollo, the god of reason, that's important, is making fun of Cupid, who is the god of Eros, uh, for his bow. (laughs) There's got to be something there. Cupid shoots Apollo with a golden arrow and Daphne, a river nymph, with a lead one, causing Apollo, against his will, to fall in love and the nymph to reject his love. I mean, you get the joke. He also messes with Aphrodite, the goddess of love. So he's messed with the god of reason and now the goddess of love. And the moral is this. There is a chaotic, out-of-control love, eros, that is powerful and more dangerous than either reason or love. And it relishes messing things up. Eros is to be feared by humans and gods alike. So in their minds, Romans, eros was an ever-present and real danger, a destabilizing power that was unbeatable by mortals or gods. It upsets families, society. It causes wars, among other things. It threatened the Pax Romana. That's a big deal. The actual empire. And it must be controlled. (laughs) The Stoic philosopher Seneca, a contemporary of Jesus as well, lamented that Eros is friendship gone mad. Lucretius in the first century BCE wrote, Eros was a festering wound in need of a cure. The doctor and medical writer uh, Galen, early third century common era, concluded that Eros was a disease. He concluded that women suffering from a mysterious ailment had, in fact, simply fallen in Eros. Cicero, uh, 43 BC, thought that at least theoretically a wise person can feel Eros and yet be, quote, free from disquietude, from longing, from anxiety, and from sighing. Meaning, you know, an ideal person technically could be unaffected by Eros, but he didn't know anybody who could pull it off. So instead of eros, the Romans determined to make phileo, which is kind of a companionship love, dominant. Well, how? They actively promoted, energetically promoted the values of phileo. uh, And the Emperor Augustus, around the time of Jesus, actually tried to legislate eros out of business. I mean, it sounds like Mission Impossible, right? And by the way, it sounds a lot like my singles pastor so many years ago, and it didn't work then either. Phileo became the government-approved love in the Roman Empire. Poets, artists, playwrights, right, the social media of the day, were required to promote phileo. Phileo, good. Pornea, bad. Eros, bad. Arius Didymus, a mentor of Augustus, following the official party line, wrote that phileo was indeed the highest form of love, not eros. You know what? Nobody bought it. What did they think 
would reduce the prevalent practice of eros. Well, here we go. Here's what they tried for men. And by the way, it was a very patriarchal society. If you struggled with lust, with eros, there were government-approved outlets. It was kosher to go to prostitutes or slaves or, tragically, young boys outside your family. Yep. I mean, shockingly, today we would call that statutory rape, but to the Romans, they ethically justified it as a way to guard the family, the family unit, against this out-of-control eros energy. And the idea is that if a man could spend that energy outside the family, then they could go back and be a calm companion to their spouse. And wives, by the way, were to remain pure and faithful, at least according to the law in theory, Well, can you imagine, agree with me, that it just didn't go very well? But truth told, I'm going to suggest we've inherited the Roman view of love a little or a lot. We Christians are also terrified of eros. When I talk about eros or sex in Christian circles, everybody gets real fidgety and uncomfortable. It's it's kind of unacceptable in Christian circles. That's how we have been raised Yeah, the only difference between us and the Romans is that instead of promoting phileo, we put our money behind agape. So, what's agape? Everyone, every Sunday school child knows it's the love of God, right? It's the highest of the loves. Here's one definition. Agape refers to a pure, willful, sacrificial love that intentionally desires another's highest good. What does that even mean? And how do I do it? Because I'll admit, I tend to be selfish. I tend to want my good a little, right? Not not purely other. Anyway, that's our common understanding of agape. But it turns out agape is just a generic word for love in first century Greek. It was used to express esteem, affection, and particularly for a spouse. And Jesus said that even tax collectors do it. This is Matthew 5, 43. If you love agape, those who love you, agape, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And by the way, Jesus, God, wasn't limited to agape. We're told in John eleven thirty six 36 that he phileoed Lazarus. Certainly the boundaries between the words are not as clear as you have been told and kind of expect. God doesn't seem to be limited to just agape. So, I'm going to say, based upon my research and study, our concept of agape, honestly, it feels so much to me more like the Roman view of phileo than anything else, meaning it's not sexual, it doesn't arouse me, it's not very emotional, it may not even generate a lot of dopamine and oxytocin, remember from the first show, it's a comfortable companionship with God. I'm not deeply affected by it or worried that it's going to drive me to uncontrollable behavior. It doesn't mess really with the rest of my life, you know, Monday through Saturday. And here's the point. I can control it. But honestly, it's pretty blah. No wonder we hear people say that heaven sounds boring or Christians sound boring. I think it's time that we think of love differently and actually more biblically. Instead of seeing four distinct loves, right? Imagine love being all four together, right? Think about it in a love spectrum, zero to ten. Zero is selfish love. It includes acts and thoughts that are self-focused, me first. 
You use others to make yourself feel better. No regard to the dignity, worth, or experience of the other. It could be friendship, phileo. It could be self-serving eros, affairs, sex, pornography, and stuff that the Romans encouraged men to do to bleed off powerful urges that gives them dopamine hits, that makes them feel good, uh, not really caring if the other feels loved or honored or safe. It's uncaring of others, objectifying to others. It's selfish, a little or a lot. That is self-serving love at zero. But then there's the other side of love, 10. It's selfish, other-focused love. This love, agape, phileo, storge, and eros, is single-minded to bring the other dignity, honor, experience of being loved, lovely, and lovable, It can be very intimate. It can be friendship. It can be compassion, family, or even sexual. But the point is, it's selfless, other-directed. So now look as I unpack the spectrum. At the zero spot, there is agape, phileo, and eros, but a selfish version of each. At 10, we see selfless agape, phileo, storge, and eros. Doesn't that make more sense? You see, the biblical writers didn't try to portray God's love as some separate entity, a separate substance, agape, and then it implicitly put eros and storge and phileo in fallen human realm. No, all of the so-called loves are on this spectrum from selfish to selfless. God's love could be self-serving. By the way, he's God after all, but his is perfectly selfless. It's amazing, Right? It's a perfectly selfish agape phileo storge, and yes, even a heavenly eros. All right, I'm going to have to unpack that mic drop moment. I get that. Let's look at selfish eros for a minute. I think we know that pretty well. Did you know the New Testament never mentions eros, ever? And it's only mentioned twice in the entire Greek translation of the Old Testament. Instead, they taught against the destructiveness of selfish Eros, which they called porneia. Porneia, where we get pornography, thrives in power-imbalanced relationships where one can and does use others for their own benefit, sexual gratification, power trips. It's born of shame and shaming, often angry. It measures, it grades, it criticizes, it blames. It averts the eyes, for that's telling. But there is also a selfless eros, a godly eros. Okay, sit back, take a breath. That's probably not what you've heard, but track me here. But first, we're going to get a brief word from our sponsors. We'll be right back. I think that the late Pope John Paul II got it right. He sees this as authentic eros, and he labels porneia, that other end of the spectrum, as reductive eros. I really like that distinction. Uh, He says, authentic eros was experienced as a profound receptivity to the other for his or her own sake, as a unique and unrepeatable person whom God called into being with their own journey and path to holiness. While reductive eros considers how to discharge sexual tension, authentic eros creates a bond of belonging with the other through a reciprocal giving and receiving of the gift of self. Far from being opposed to agape, to self-sacrificial love, eros is integral to the full experience of human love because redeemed eros sees and embraces the whole value of the other from top to bottom, left to right, inside to outside, for whom we want to sacrifice. The entirety of the beloved is received and welcomed 
even the prickly and shame-filled parts. And then he brilliantly adds, this authentic eros isn't meant to be avoided. Precisely the opposite. Eros is meant to find a home in the human heart by being united to agape. Look, eros didn't just occur after the fall. There was a holy and godly eros sourced from God in the garden in perfection with both Adam and Eve. Their desires were for the other before the fall. It only became twisted and reductive after the fall. And because of the fall, we're now immersed in a value blindness, which moves us to subconsciously reduce the other to their sexual value alone. Can they satisfy my longings a little or a lot? And that's the core of porneia. The Romans and much of modern Christianity has tossed the the baby, godly eros, out with the bathwater, porneia. All right, I know what you're thinking. I've taught this so many times, and and often the first reaction is a great deal of discomfort. God's love includes eros? I mean, you probably didn't see that coming. It feels a little dirty, right? But hang with me here. In the case of God, I'm not speaking of an eros that is physical. Rather, it's spiritual, emotional, chemical. Remember from the first God Loves the Unlovable show, Your Brain in Love, I went into great detail about what happens in your brain when you fall in love. A heady chemical cocktail is ignited that makes you feel euphoric, filled with new energy. You feel surprisingly more open and vulnerable to be loved. You feel lovable. You even feel lovely. You feel more and more connected to the other. You feel loved and you feel love. So in those moments when you're caught up in a spiritual embrace from God through the Holy Spirit in you, you begin to feel some or much of Uh, the neuroscientific effect of what we're calling godly eros. It is not from physical touch, rather it's spiritual, emotional touch. If I was to ask what's happening, we have a culturally approved phrase, I am falling in love. You can't make it happen, right? You can't stop it. You're on a wonderful and frightening roller coaster ride with, with your prefrontal cortices shut down and your subconscious in charge, In C.S. Lewis's categories, you're feeling some or all of the so-called four loves, including God-sourced authentic eros. It's okay. I'm suggesting that the Holy Spirit is triggering your brain to feel the same hormones that friends and lovers feel. Oh, and don't get me wrong, I am sure that this making me feel loved involves much more than uh, that spiritually, but neurologically, I can't imagine that the Holy Spirit doesn't take advantage of the way that he made our brain. And we become flushed with the same chemicals that lovers feel, but without the physical aspect of it. This is what Jesus purchased for you, largely. In heaven, you're going to feel this all the time. So look, today, don't settle for just thin phileo with God. Your brain wants so much more. You deserve so much more because he's paid for it. And when the Holy Spirit does his thing, you begin to feel like you're falling in love with Jesus and feel like he is falling in love with you, which, of course, he has already been for 2,000 years. You're just beginning to feel it afresh again and again and again, like a dance over and over and over. This godly love involves no physical touch at all. But the emotional and neurological feeling, the effect, is similar to when we're falling in love with another human. To repeat, absolutely no physical touch involved or implied. We don't have any other words or concepts to describe it that I'm feeling loved. Now, when Jesus was on the earth... I believe that when he touched someone or held somebody or embraced someone or kissed somebody on the cheek, they felt the very same, very powerful igniting of the usual brain chemicals that made them feel loved. Uh, 
Look, if this is still troubling to you, I get it. Just process it. Let me know what you think. Bill at gospel-app.com. My first book, by the way, co-authored with the brilliant Colleen Pepper, The Kiss of God, is all about God's radical love for the unlovable from the Song of Songs in the Old Testament. It was under contract by a major Christian publishing house for a year, and after multiple committee reviews, we got a call that unless we drastically changed the language of the book, they wouldn't publish it because they said that all of this talk about a romantically pursuing God would trouble their readers too much. Well, you know, I think they were right. It's troubling to modern Christians. It shouldn't be, but it is. So tragically, so you know what we did? We published it ourselves. You can get it on Amazon or at the gospel-app.com website. But since we've ignored with the church some aspects of God's love, I think, de-emphasized them, we Christians come to worship and leave still feeling unloved, unworthy, and unlovable. Yeah? Or maybe we come to a church just relegated to tepid phileo that the Romans so cherished. I'm telling you, church, we can't sustain this. With more and more people, Christians, feeling lonely and anxious. A little while ago, I was doing a weekend Kiss of God conference at a local church. After one session, an 80-plus-year-old widow came up to me in tears physically shaking, and she embarrassingly said that she wondered if she might be feeling the love of God for her right then. I think she was. She hadn't felt that in such a long time. And of course, she knew in her prefrontal cortex God loves her, but now she was experiencing it again. So I'm guessing in her brain, the Holy Spirit had opened up the spigot of the good brain hormones just to make sure she didn't miss God hugging her, God's kisses. Praise God. I mean, how have we missed it? And by the way, if you're interested in me doing a Kisses of God weekend at your church or group, let me know, bill at gospel-app.com. But look, don't invite me if you're worried about your people hearing about a God who romantically pursues the unlovable. But if you're ready to light things up, I'm in. Contact me. So it turns out, ironically, the Romans were terrified by the wrong love. Turns out, God's love for the unlovable is even more dangerous than Eros, because it can rewire the entire societal's norms. It turns societal food chains on their head. Uh, Here's an example. We had a convicted child molester become a Christian and start coming to one of my churches. It was a head trip, right? I mean, he had served his time in a psych prison, became a Christian by listening to sermons on my sermons on cassette tapes, remember them? And then chose the halfway house when he got out near the church so he could come and worship God Jesus with us. And first, everybody praised God for his salvation of this this man. He was an unworthy by any measurement, and he has become worthy by the love of God for the unlovable. And of course, there were legitimate safety issues that we had to work to address, and we did. But surrounding that was another head trip for so many people. This was dangerous, right? And here's the question. What kind of love is it that places him, a convicted child molester, in the same arms as the person who wasn't a convicted child abuser or a child? In what world would this guy be as loved and as honored as us or our children? It's the stark, terrifying, amazing, totally other love of God for the unlovable. But that young man... The child molester was a poster child for this dangerous love that can quickly undermine the the Roman Empire. So how does one experience that love more 
now. Well, not by trying hard to becoming more lovable, right? Check out the last show. Not by trying to love more, whatever that means. You've likely tried that too and how that worked for you. Instead, here's something that you can do that has proven to work in the lives of many Christians. Say the simple uncluttered gospel twice a day for 45 days. Say it aloud, word for word. It's actual science involved. But for now, just sit back and listen as I say it. Let it wash over you. All good? Okay, here it is. Jesus follower, strictly because of what Jesus did for you 2,000 years ago, God actually loves you. He loves you with all of his heart, as much as the Father loves the Son, and the Son loves the Father. He can't love you any more or any less than he does right now. He loves you as you are, not as you should be or could be. You can't add to this love or take away from it. Now, I get it. It often feels like you've messed it up or need to do something so that God would like you better. Not so. How do you experience it more now? Simple. Good news. There is something that you can do and are invited to do. You can take daily baby steps to ask the Spirit inside of you to make you know, experience, and feel just how much God loves you right now. Just ask. Ask again later today. Ask tomorrow. Make it a spiritual habit. So did you hear it? What struck you? What jumped off the page? What bothered you? And make notes. Here's the question of the day. Did you feel a little bit the love of Christ for you? That's the point of God's love for the unlovable show. We aren't interested in just teaching a class. Our passion is for the unlovable to begin to feel loved by God and to begin to feel love for others and themselves more. That could change the world. I strongly recommend that you get groups, packets of simple and cluttered gospel bookmarks from either gospel-app.com or gospelrant.com. You can just read them aloud twice a day. They're inexpensive, but so buy a bunch. Hand them out to family and friends and church and Bible studies. Give them to visitors to your church. As always, I want to invite you to join us on our way to tell as many Christians as we can about God's love for the unlovable. It should become very noticeable in our communities, our countries. I think, unfortunately, that it is an all-too-well-kept secret. I mean, how can you stand with us? First, pray to God about what you might be able or motivated to do. You may have contacts. You may have special skills, ideas, times, ability to give. Follow God and then check out our website, gospel-app.com. So many resources, many free. Drop me a line, bill at gospel-app.com. All of you can get the link to this show to friends, church, family, and please do. Thanks ahead of time. And help us get the word out about this new God's Love for the Unlovable series. They will thank you. I have a new book about long-overlooked and underappreciated women in the Old Testament. It should be published soon. If you want to know when it gets published, drop me an email, bill at gospel-app.com. Also, let me know what you think about this show. I would really appreciate it. In the next Gospel Rant podcast, we're going to do a case study, what this selfless love of God looked like in practice. A very unlikely, unloved Samaritan woman felt it, it changed her, and she struggled with how to explain it in her context. Don't miss this. In the meantime, help us get the word out. So many Christians should be hearing this, we think, and rethinking what they believe about love. If you benefited from this podcast, please give us a comment wherever you listen to podcasts and officially follow the program. I thank you ahead of time. If you're stuck not feeling this love of God and haven't for a long time, please check our online individual journey called The Dance. 
www.the-dance.org. Go to the landing page and check it out. Only two hours. And check out the testimonies of Christians like you who were just as stuck. It's time to hear the music again. We'll see you next time. Take heart, child of God. Once in a generation, a podcast comes along with the power and eloquence to inspire us all. This show will entertain you while you wait for that one. Join two best friends, author and former history teacher John Driver and comedian Johnny W. for hilarious and authentic conversations about life, history, culture, faith, and everything in between. You can listen to Talk About That wherever you find your podcasts or at lifeaudio.com.